Hello, friends. Welcome to another episode of Tell Us a Good Story. Today, we have a really fun conversation with an economist. (laughs) Who even knew that was possible? Right? Well, we found out it is possible stuff. (laughs) We talked to Dr. Anthony Chan, who recently retired from my old stomping grounds, J.P. Morgan Chase, as their chief global economist. Now, I didn't know him there, but I did find out we worked in a couple of the same buildings during our careers there, which was pretty cool to find out. Okay. I'm not going to lie. I was super nervous to talk to Dr. Chan, but this man is not only brilliant, but I was so impressed with how humble he was. Yes, He shared a little bit about his childhood and his upbringing in New York City, which was just inspiring. Can't wait for you guys to hear this conversation with Dr. Anthony Chan. I'm Kevin. And I'm Stephanie. And during our marriage, we have dealt with an electrocution, a brain tumor, brain surgery. Then doctors telling us that children were not in our future, followed by miscarriage, and then Kevin's cancer diagnosis. However, today, we live a life completely healed and restored with three healthy children who doctors said were not possible. And we're here to tell stories that inspire, give hope, and brighten your day. Welcome to Tell Us a Good Story. This episode is being presented to you by Russell & Associates. This financial services firm in New Albany, Ohio, specializes in retirement planning and asset management. Check out their website at russellandcompany.com. There you can download your free copy of the Just In Case book that will help prepare you for your future. Thank you, Russell & Associates, for being a proud sponsor of Tell Us a Good Story. All right, now, Steph, as a financial guy, I am uber excited to have a conversation with our next guest. Okay, so I'm I'm going to be honest. I know you're really excited, but I'm super nervous about this next guest because he's a big deal. He is a big deal. He's a big deal, but I just had the best conversation with him talking <laughs> about graters and Jenny's ice cream, and I'm totally <laughs> loving this man already. So he's so now your new best friend. He's my best friend now, so it's fantastic. <laughs> well, friends, our next guest is a public speaker, former college professor, and has a PhD in economics. He just retired two years ago from J.P. Morgan Chase, where he was a managing director and their chief global economist. And Steph, I'm going to go on a limb here and say, this man's probably the smartest person we have ever talked to on the <laughs> he show. definitely is the smartest person we've ever talked to. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to Tell Us a Good Story, Dr. Anthony Chan. Welcome, sir. Dr. Chan, where are you? I'm in New York City. Are you? I'm about a block and a half away from the Empire State Building, which is where I live. Wow. <laughs> where are you? We're in Columbus, Ohio. That's where I used to live. Did you? Oh, yeah. I used to live in Westerville. What? Okay. We are trying to figure out where to live because we <laughs> sold our house. We're in a rental just hey, trying Steph, to figure out the... Okay. This I'm was sorry. a while ago, though. Oh, he, was he, it? He hasn't lived in Ohio in, in probably 30 years. Did you like Westerville, though? That's why I'm getting it. Did you like Westerville? I loved it. I loved it. My, I'm so excited right now. All right. So excited about this. So, Dr. Chan, in preparation for this conversation with You've you. You've done a lot of research. I have. Yes. Right? I watched a lot of TV clips of you, interviews on CNBC and Fox Business News and so on. And I'm going to be honest with you. I actually understood a couple things that you said. <laughs> Like you are so professional, so deep. Step, he's talking about China, supply chain, World Economic Forum, federal economic policy, and I'm blown away, right? So, Dr. Chan, first off, are you just constantly researching? Like what what do you do on a daily basis? 
Well, even now, during my retirement, because I do public speaking, I've tried to at least skim through with academic research, uh, government research, or Wall Street research. I really try my best uh, to stay in touch with things. But to me, it's like a hobby. So it's not really work. It's, it's fun stuff. It's like eating ice cream. It's totally. It's, I don't know if I would put both of those, those two. two in the same category, Dr. Chan. But are you reading like newspapers? What are you reading to get your information? Well, I do read newspapers, but that's not my primary source. Uh, I like to read original research that either Wall Street houses put out, the Federal Reserve, the World Bank, the IMF, those type of organizations that put out really good research. And again, this is probably because I used to be an economics professor, believe it or not, in Ohio at the University of Dayton. So Ohio is very special to me. And I used to publish research and read a lot of research. And and somehow that's a habit you pick up and you never give it up. Go Flyers. Yes. Right? Impressive. Okay. So Steph, again, you do not watch CNBC. You don't watch anything financial, but I want you to hear how professional Dr. Chan is. Okay. Okay. Dr. Chan, I made up a financial question here for you. Would you mind role-playing here? And let's act as if you're on CNBC. I want Steph to hear how professional you are in this conversation, right? You can make up statistics. We're not fact-checking. But I have a question here for you because I want to show my wife how good you are. So I'm going to pretend like I'm on CNBC here. You totally are, yes. So Dr. Chan, my question is, can you share your thoughts on the most recent decision by the U.S. Federal Reserve to keep interest rates unchanged? Yes, the Federal Reserve kept interest rates unchanged at this time because even though inflation is running at a very high pace, that means growing fast, that pace is mostly transitory in nature. When you look at the components of the consumer price index, what you'll find is that most of them are associated with the reopening of the economy. And once that takes place, guess what? Those price pressures will come down and the Federal Reserve wants to do two things. That is stable prices and and stable employment. And yes, inflation is a little higher, but guess what? It is mostly temporary in nature, according to the Federal Reserve. And that's why they kept interest rates unchanged. Did you get all that? I didn't get any of it. (laughs) That was But I'm so so impressed right now. I told you how professional he is. That was, no wonder he's on CNBC. Yes. Right? That was so good. So why don't you ask Dr. Chan the question you asked me the other night when we were talking about him after dinner? Which one? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So what do you actually do? What's an economist do? Well, what I do on a, on a day-to-day basis is I, I see the stock market going up some days. I see it going down. And what I want to do is to try to figure out what are the things that make that happen? Is it because they think the economy is getting stronger? Is it because they think that inflationary pressures are coming down? Is it because they think interest rates are going higher? So I'm like a detective. Call me like a, a Sherlock Holmes trying to figure out what are the factors that are causing all this to happen. That's what I do on a day-to-day basis. I always want to answer those kind of questions. Okay, so you're an economist, a really big deal economist. So when the stock market starts crashing, are you just like, it's okay? Or is your heart like, oh crap, I know what this means. This isn't good. We got to get on this. How are you in level of how you- Report things. Well, and handle situations like that. Very calm, because if you look at the last hundred years, every time you get a recession, you generally get a stock market that drops somewhere around 25 to 35 percent. In fact, during the global financial crisis, we dropped over 50 percent, 56 percent to be exact. And of course, this last time, 
we dropped a little over 30%. But guess what? These things come and these things pass and the market recovers. We shouldn't panic when I see the market fluctuate. Again, my role and my excitement is to try to explain it, not to panic. Kevin, do you like to help your friends out? It depends. If our friends are asking me to help them move, then no, I absolutely do not (laughs) like to help my friends out. But what if your friend had a weekly radio show and podcast and just wanted you to tell someone about it? Yes, I could totally do that. That is much easier than me trying to carry a piano down into a basement, which has happened to me in the past, and you know who you are. (laughs) Friends, we are not asking you to carry a piano for us, but if you like what you hear, please tell someone about us. As soon as this episode is over, go tell your spouse, your closest friend, a parent, a coworker, or share one of our posts on social media. However, if you don't like what you're hearing, please do not. Don't tell anyone. Don't tell anyone. Don't tell anybody. Just disregard this message. Don't worry about it. Forget about us. Yep. Go on with your merry day. But regardless, thank you for listening. So Dr. Chan, here's the thing. We look at you and the career you've had and how professional you are, but you come from a very humble background and upbringing, right? You didn't start off as a global chief economist and traveling the world and speaking to thousands of people. Can you share with us a little bit about your childhood and your upbringing in New York City and and what you have overcome? I think that's an understatement when you say that I come from humble beginnings. Uh, My mother cleaned office buildings. My dad was a waiter. We grew up in low-income housing projects in New York City, very poor, drug-infested, gang-infested neighborhoods. Uh, A lot of people were worried whether or not I would survive that. And I got a job because my dad died at the age of 10. And so both me and my mom, we had to make sure that we had enough money so we could put food on the table. Uh, My favorite story is that a lot of people would come up to me and say, oh, do you want to buy drugs and things like that? But I worked at Kentucky Fried Chicken and I got a job at the age of 13. Even though you had to be 16, I lied because I needed the money. We, had, we needed the money for supermarket groceries. And so I worked there and there was a 50 pound bag of lard or a box that you would have to throw into the fryer. I wasn't strong enough. So I would struggle and I would just basically push it in. And the, and the lard would come up. It was boiling and all my arms were burned and I had all oh. these scars over my arms. And, and I thought, this is terrible. They might be permanent. They're not. Thank God they went away. But at the time, they actually helped me because a lot of drug dealers would come up to me and say, do you want to buy drugs? And I said, no, I'm OK. I have my own. And, I, and then people would say, well, should we get mad at him, beat him up because he's being arrogant? And I would just show my arms and they said, oh, no, he's cool. He's look at his needle marks. Look at all those scars on his arms. So that actually saved my life and allowed me to survive uh, the neighborhood that I grew up in. Oh, stuff from KFC getting burned by the oil. Do you have siblings or was it just you and your mom at that point? I had a brother and still alive. He's 84 years old, but he was out of the house. He left the house when I was born to get married. So I grew up basically me, my mom and my dad. And uh, and after my dad died at the age of 10, it was just me and my mom. Okay. So Dr. Chan, let me take a moment here to brag on you. Okay. So for most of our guests... I give a list of fun facts, and I have not informed Steph of, of any of these. Excellent. So, as we go through these, Steph, I know it's going to spur some conversations, some questions, but I want to brag on Dr. Chan here. And if I miss anything, if I mess up, please feel free to correct me. So, Dr. Chan went on to become the first person in his family to receive his high school diploma and then his bachelor's degree, all on public assistance in New York City. That's right. Wow. And then Dr. Chan received his master's and PhD in economics from the University of Maryland. 
Upon graduating, he became an economics professor at the University of Dayton, which he briefly mentioned. Yep. How long were you there, Dr. Chan? I was there for about almost three years. And okay. actually, I love being there. And, and I was so excited about publishing that you needed three articles to basically get tenure so you can basically have a job for life. And in three years, I published five articles. So I already was on my way to basically get uh, tenure. And I remember till this day that I wanted to continue to do it because I enjoyed the research. So I wrote to the Federal Reserve Bank in New York and I told them, look, I got this article. I want to publish it in a better place. Can you give me some advice? And they said, why don't you come on over? I said, well, I'm an assistant professor at the University of Dayton. I don't really have money to fly down and get a hotel because I'm trying to raise a family. And they said, oh, that's fine. We'll give you the money. We'll put you in a hotel. No problem. I went down there. And three weeks later, I'm getting a little anxious. They're not calling me. And I said, don't you want to give me some feedback? And they said, oh, yeah, we were going to call you and give you uh, some good news. And I said, what kind of good news? We want to make you a job offer. And I said, no, 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 no. I, I'm going to get tenure at the University of Dayton. This is exactly what I want to do. And they said, well, how much money do you get? And I basically mentioned them to them. And they said, we're going to give you a 50% wage hike. Oh. And I said to myself, no, no, no. I don't. I, I love teaching at the University of Dayton. I have my career set. And then I told my wife at the time, uh, I'm, not, I'm no longer married to her. But she said, if you don't take that job, we're getting a divorce. So I decided <laughs> maybe it's a good idea to take the job. And so I took the job and that's how I started. Uh, that was the beginning of my Wall Street career, working for the Federal Reserve. Can I ask how old you were when that happened? Yeah, I was 29 years old at the time. So I had to make all these quick decisions. Yes, yes. you did. So when you left New York, how old were you? The first time I, I, I left New York, there was a program that actually picked 25 minorities or, or people of native descent to actually participate in a program at the uh, Northwestern University. They picked 25 all over the country. And I was going to Baruch College in New York City. And a lot of people in my family said, why are you applying to that? They only picked 25 from the whole country. You're not going to get in. I said, well, I had a very nice professor who had full confidence in me. I applied. I got it. So that was the first time I left New York. Believe it or not, I was 19 years old. And that was the first time I ever got on an airplane. And they basically sponsored me and they gave me a, a fellowship program where I spent eight weeks uh, at, at Northwest. And that was the first time I left uh, New York. And today, of course, uh, one of the airlines, and I won't mention it so that people don't think I'm making a commercial. I have a card that says I have flown over six and a half million miles all over the world. But I never got on an airplane until I was 19 years old. Again, reflective of my very humble beginnings. We could not afford a plane ticket. I only flew because they gave me the money to, to get on that airplane at the age of 19 for the first time in my life. 10 years later, you're back in New York working for the Federal, Federal Reserve. Reserve. I mean, did you just like pinch yourself like this is my life? Like this is actually happening? I pinched myself. But if you ask me, my pinching myself moment came later after I left the Federal Reserve. I was selected to be one of the economists. They picked like uh, something like eight economists to actually brief the Federal Reserve on off the record sessions twice a year. And I was one of those economists that was selected. And one day uh, I got to go and we would go to these off the record sessions. And I got to meet with the entire board of governors, Alan Greenspan, Janet Yellen. She was a board of governor. And I got to discuss the research I was working on. And I never forget 
the look on Alan Greenspan's face. And he said, that's very interesting. He kept asking me questions and he said, told the staff, we're going to work on that idea. And so when I came back to my hotel, it wasn't a pinch myself moment. It was a crying moment for me because here's this kid that grew up in the inner cities, very poor, with many people telling me I had no opportunity. And here I am briefing the top economists in the United States. That was my pinch moment for me. Oh, so what's Alan Greenspan like then behind the scenes? Please tell me he's like a prankster, a jokester, <laughs> because he doesn't, he doesn't come across that way in his sessions. But what, what's he actually like? He's actually very serious. He may joke, but it's a very dry sense of humor. Another story is that I, when Paul Volcker was there and he was a jokester, because again, really? another quick story, uh, I got to meet at Paul Volcker, the Fed chair at the time, and he took me under his wing because here I'm this little young kid. And he told me, stick around with me. People think that I know something. You'll later find out I don't know as much, but let's fake it for a minute. So he was the jokester, uh, Paul Volcker, which I got to meet and got to go to a lot of the policy meetings because he says, here's my my young kid that I want to mentor. He would let me sit around. He said, as long as you don't go out and tell any reporters about anything you hear. And I said, I'm so young, it's not clear I would even understand what's going on. But again, over time, I got to understand more and more and more. That's incredible. So back to my list of fun facts, of course, he, and he mentioned a, a few of these. So he worked at the Federal Reserve uh, of New York as an economist from 89 to 91 before joining Barclays as a senior economist. Then in 1994, he joined JP Morgan, where he worked for 25 years before retiring in 2019 as managing director and chief global economist. Now, I worked for JP Morgan Chase for about seven years. Cool. And yes, so I'm a CPA. I have my MBA, finance background. And what building did you work at? Were you at 270 Park? I was at 270 Park. I was at 245 Park. And I was at another one. So I worked in three different buildings in New York, as well okay. as a, a building in Westerville when I first started, uh, right in Westerville. Because remember, I worked for Bank One Investment Advisors before they merged with J.P. Morgan. So I started yes. my J.P. Morgan career in Westerville, Ohio. So I worked in Westerville, mm -hmm. Ohio, for J.P. Morgan Chase. I was in a, that building right beside of, uh, St. Anne's Hospital. And, and I don't want to cut you off, but I also worked at Polaris, at yes. the uh, Polaris Center that, uh, that was built afterwards. I, I tried to tell people, Dr. Chan, how massive that building is. And working for J.P. Morgan Chase for seven years, I would get random questions, and, and maybe you did too. People would ask me, hey, where do you work? J.P. Morgan Chase. Hey, do you know Bob Williamson? And you're just like, <laughs> listen, the Polaris building alone has 10,000 people in it. Like, yeah. the, the odds of that actually happening are so minor because it, it is a humongous company. It is. Humongous in fact, company. When, when I was there, they told me that if you look at the square footage of that entire campus... And if you try to build it up, it was actually higher than one of the buildings in the World Trade Center, unfortunately, that went down. That's how big it is. From what I remember, Steph, it's a quarter of a mile end to end. And so the one position I had, my boss was on the other end of the building, Dr. Chan. And there was like two times where I forgot a report or paper. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm like a sweaty mess trying to get to the meeting because I just walked literally half a mile yep. trying to get to my, my meeting with my boss on time. But um. Yeah, that, that's very interesting. You, you worked in Westerville with, at Chase. That's incredible. So as you just mentioned, he previously served on the Economic Advisory Committee of the American Bankers Association, where one of his important responsibilities was to brief former chairman of the Federal Reserve, Alan Greenspan. And then he's been interviewed 
and quoted in all the major media outlets that you would have heard of. Okay, so Wall Street Journal, Barron's, New York Times, the Washington Post, Chicago Tribune, LA Times, Investors, Business Daily. And he's made over 650 live television appearances. 650 on CNBC, CNN International, Yahoo Finance, Fox Business News, and the China Global Television Network. So I'm sure at the beginning, were you nervous when you first started your career? Going I'm live? Sure, yes, going live and be like, what are they going to ask me? I hope I know the answer. Were you like that at the beginning? I love that question because it's funny how I started. I was working for Barclays and my boss was the one that did all the television. And he never really let me go. He always did it. But one day he got sick. I think he had the flu or something. And he had an interview. And he told me, call them up for me and tell them I lost my voice. I can't do it. and I can't go. And I told them. And they said, well, what do you do? I said, I'm the senior economist, the number two guy. They said, well, we can't get somebody now this, this late um, uh, notice. Why, why don't you come and do it? And I, and I basically called them and I said, look, they can't do it. And if your reputation is on the line, they said, would I go? And he said, yeah, go ahead and do it. Well, after I did that interview, they kept calling and calling and calling. That's how my career started. But the short answer to your question is I was so excited to do it that I forgot I was supposed to be nervous because I was so excited. (laughs) And then when I came back and they said, are you nervous? I said, wow, I didn't realize I was supposed to be nervous. So I didn't think about it. And so if I wasn't nervous for the first one, why should I be nervous for the future ones? That's a good point. Yeah. So is there ever been a time where you were like talking and you're like, I just nailed that. And then you re-listened. You're like, I said billion and not million. Or did you ever have something like that? And you're like, oh. Messed up on live TV. Yes. I thank God that that has never happened because I, in fact, on average for every TV interview live that I do, and, and sometimes people think I'm crazy, but I probably spend between 10 and 15 hours preparing for it. So again, really? I work that hard that by the time I get there, it goes fairly smoothly, not because I'm the smartest guy in the draw, but because I'm probably the hardest working guy in the draw that those things go smoothly. Do you have a general idea of what they're going to talk about? Like, hey, we're bringing you in, Dr. Chan, to talk about foreign policy, foreign policy or, or the housing market yeah. or something like that. Do you have a general idea? Well, I actually have to formulate my general idea because if, for example, if they bring me in on the day that the consumer price index is released or the employment report is released, then chances are that that's what the questions are going to be like. But CNN, CNBC, Bloomberg, none of those major television networks tell you what kind of questions they're going to ask. It's always unscripted. They don't share that with you because remember, and again, this is not a knock on 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 any of these uh, big prestigious media outlets, but their job is to make themselves look good, not to make you look good. So they don't tell any of the guests what questions they're going to ask. But so you have to work that hard to make sure that anything that comes up. Now, sometimes I go in there thinking, these are the kind of questions that I'm going to get. And yet when you get there, none of those questions are asked. (laughs) Something completely different. So yeah, sometimes a lot of times you get surprised. So no, it's, it's always an adventure. So going along with what you just said then, where they release the unemployment rate. And what happens when, say, you know, a TV producer gives you a quick call? Do you have just like 15 minutes to grab a suit, jacket, and tie, get ready? Like, how far in advance notice are they giving you? No, they usually give you a day in advance. But sometimes okay. that has happened many times when they say, oh, we just had a cancellation. Uh, can you come down? And they basically send the car to pick you up. They're, they're, they do that not just for me, but for everybody else. And so sometimes you get that call. Uh, maybe 
an hour before, 45 minutes before. Yeah, it's not unusual for that to happen. Not oh, that's unusual quick. at all. Good thing he's preparing stuff. Yes, that's true. So back to my fun facts. The final fun fact here is Dr. Chan also serves as the treasurer of the Skyhook Foundation, which is the organization that was founded by Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. That's fun. So how did you meet him, Dr. Chan? Well, I actually met him at a presentation I did for J.P. Morgan Chase. He's, okay. He was attending and both him and his manager were very impressed with my presentation. They said, well, let's get to know each other. And then over time, things just worked out that I spent a lot of time uh, trying to help them raise money for a very good cause. And that is to help unprivileged men and women or young, uh, young students basically get exposed to the STEM cell sector, science, technology, engineering, and mathematics at the third or fourth grade level. And it cost the uh, foundation only three to $400 per child to basically put them through that program. And by the way, I do this completely pro bono. I don't do it for any money because again, it helps me give back, give them the upbringing that I have. That's amazing. How long have you been involved with that then? I've been involved with Kareem for maybe about uh, two or three years. I've been talking on So we've been working really, really hard. But there's actually an inside story. And that is that Kareem also grew up in the housing projects of Dightman in New York. And I actually didn't know him at the time. But my cousins that actually grew up in that housing project were very close to him. And he actually knew a lot of my cousins when I got to meet him. And he mentioned to me that he grew up in the Dykeman Projects. I said, oh, my God, that's where my cousins grew up. And I gave him names. And, and not only did he know them, but he knew the siblings of my cousins. So, and he <laughs> mentioned the names about how he used wow. to hang out with them. and all. Small world that he knew your family. That's crazy. Well, I do want to ask you a couple financial questions, if you don't mind. Okay? Absolutely. The first being... I want to get your thoughts on the housing market. Of course, I saw the other day in, in Forbes that the median cost of a house since the pandemic started has skyrocketed 24%, right? I'm curious your thoughts, Dr. Chan, on do you think this is more of like a permanent shift in, in the housing market or is this a bubble or what are your thoughts based on what you see? Well, first of all, the term bubble, it means different things to different people. A bubble to some people indicates that it's going to burst at some point. To other people, a bubble means that it's really growing. But if somehow you can control that bubble, it never really has to explode. But let me answer your question. Your number is correct from the beginning of the pandemic. But as an economist, we like to look at the year-over-year change. If you look at existing homes, which are about 90% of the housing market, or new homes, which are about 10%, when you look at the two types of houses, median home prices in the last 12 months, they're both up. One of them is up 17.8% year over year. The other one is up 18.4%. That's a lot. But the short answer is, this is not sustainable because the latest numbers show that wages are rising 4% on a year over year basis. Now you might say, well, how in the world can they afford these houses that are up 20% or 18% on a year over year basis? Well, two things. We got a lot of money during the pandemic. So people got some money for down payments. Plus, the stock market is up 101% from the bottom of March of 2020. All of that is helping people with the down payments. But is the stock market going to go up 100% every 12 to 18 months? Of course not. And by the way, is the government going to be spending $5 trillion every 12 months and just sending checks to everybody? Of course not. So again, all these things tell me that this is not sustainable. So the answer is, it's not that the bubble has to burst like in 2008, when the average house 
dropped by over 30%. That was very painful for a lot of people. What I think is prices will continue to ease, air will continue to come out of that balloon. In other words, you can't have a situation where housing prices are growing faster than people's wealth. That's not sustainable. So this won't last. Good. (laughs) That is good. We needed to hear that, Dr. Chan. So the other financial question I had for you, Dr. Chan, was, of course, hindsight's twenty twenty in regards to how we would have handled the pandemic and everything. But if you were in charge over the past 18 months, what would you have done during the pandemic from an economic perspective? Would you have shut everything down initially, like what happened? I, I'm curious to get your thoughts on how you would have handled that situation during the pandemic. Ooh, that's, that's, a, that's a great question. And one of the things that's that I- a good question. <laughs> I've prided myself in my 30 plus year career is that I'm the most nonpartisan individual. So it, I don't take sides. I don't favor what Democrats tell you to do. I don't favor what Republicans, everybody in your audience should decide for themselves. I just give them the facts. And let me give them to you. First of all, when you shut down the economy, guess what happens? You guarantee that you're going to get a recession. When you shut down the economy, you, you, you kill it. And basically everything slows down. And people say, well, you never should have done that. You should just let this virus run through. And the answer is, yes, if you shut down the economy, you're going to hurt the economy. That's the given. But what are the other side? The other side says, oh, it's important to just let it run through, let it cycle through. Well, today, no secret, we have 632,000 people that have died because of COVID-19. So what does it mean to just let it cycle through? It means that instead of 632,000 people, maybe it would have been 1.2 or even 2 million people would have died. Because remember, the more people that get it, the faster you reach herd immunity and the faster this goes right through the economy. So, yes, you can make the argument, but you also have to accept the fact that more people will die. And I leave it to the politicians to decide which one was the better thing. But then if you want to make it even more complex, medical experts are telling us that when you get the vaccine, it only lasts anywhere from six to eight months. Right. And you might say, how do I know that? Because of all the studies out there, six to eight months. Look what happened in Israel. They were the first to get all these high vaccinations. And now they're the first to be getting all these breakthrough infections. So bottom line, even if you get the vaccination, getting the so-called herd immunity that we all thought we could get if somehow 70 or 80 or 90 percent of the people get the vaccine, that's no longer true because six to eight months from now, You're not starting from square one, but you're starting from an early stage. So again, you got to make that decision. Is it better to just let it cycle through and it will take care of itself? And it will. More people get it, more people die. Or you shut down the economy and just completely have other issues like people's income go down, mental health issues come up when when you're shut down. So I don't judge. I let everyone make the decision. And I tell people both sides had good arguments and it is for you to decide which one was the better course? Not for me to decide. That was a very good answer. That was an excellent answer. That was answer. an excellent answer. That was good. Does your memory, do you have, what's that called? When photographic you, memory. Photographic memory. Do you have a photographic memory? Just all these numbers? Yay! Ever since I was a kid, I never had trouble remembering statistics. And in fact, I did a presentation once uh, for J.P. Morgan Chase, and they, they were asking me these questions, and I threw out all these statistics. And there was a lady at the back checking her Google and fact-checking all my statistics and finally raised her hand and she goes, I am fascinated that you just gave off like 10 statistics and I just fact-checked you and they were all right. How did you do that? (laughs) (laughs) Photographic memory. Not only that, but 
who fact checks that? Who would do that? Like, yeah. um, excuse me, you said it was 3.4%. It's actually 3.2%. Yeah, exactly. Uh, get your facts straight. Like, who does that? Apparently they, she does. They did it. Yeah, they did it. That oh, was funny. Oh, my gosh. gosh. At a J.P. Morgan Klein event. Really? Yes. So, yeah, I, I, I do have a photographic memory for the things that I love, things that are a passion. And things that are a passion for me are numbers and statistics. I love memorizing statistics and using them when people ask questions. Because to me, it's pretty easy. It's not really that hard. It's easy. It's memorizing things that you don't enjoy. That's what's hard. Like remembering your birthday stuff. That uh-huh. is easy for me to remember, just like Dr. Chan was saying. I have a question for you. This is totally off the wall. But in your house, who manages your finances? You or your wife? Well, actually, this is not my first marriage. So we both manage our own individual finances. So we have a little bit of a joint uh, effort, but uh, we, ma- we manage them separately. But my wife often asks me for advice. But I tell her again, I, whenever she asks me a question, I give her the pros and cons. And I tell her, I respect you. You can make your own decision, but I give you both sides, and then you make a decision. Do you have spreadsheets on top of spreadsheets on top of spreadsheets <laughs> for your for finances? Yes. I, I do not. I do not. No? I, a lot of it is in my head. Wow. I do not have spreadsheets. Really? Really. My wife, on the other hand, loves spreadsheets. That's Does like she? That's her hobby, and sometimes it drives me crazy when she has so many spreadsheets. But no, I don't have them. Outside of your wife, do you get a lot of questions at a party or a restaurant like, hey, do you have any stock advice? Do you have any market advice? Like, how does that work with friends of yours? Only with family or super friends, because when I socialize and go to a party, I, I typically don't talk about what I do for a living. And so they don't, they don't really ask. And I said, no, I just work for, for financial services firm. No big deal. And then I, I did use that line a, a lot until a recent party and somebody said, Wait a second. We just saw you on a TV network. And I think, I think you're holding, we're holding back on us. So I do get busted every now and then. And, and here's a really good one. Here's a really good story. We were traveling on vacation, me and my wife. We were One of my favorite places to go to is Honolulu. And so we're going through the TSA. And one of the TSAs grabbed me and he says, we're going to have to uh, check you out. There, there's something wrong. And my wife goes, did you put a water bottle in your carry-on? I said, no, I don't have anything. She says, now we're going to miss the plane. And the guy goes, no, no, this is serious. You got to come with us. And then finally, my wife goes, she's insisting on knowing why I got busted by the TSA. And the TSA guy then smiles and he says, I saw him on CNBC and I have a financial question. (laughs) And so my wife just lost it. She she thought she had got me. No, I didn't have any water in my bag. So the guy thought it was a joke. He did ask his financial question, and then we went right through. Are Talk you, about abuse of power. I was gonna say, do you do you get offended, or do you think it's funny and you're really chill about it? I oh. thought it was. I thought it was very funny. I I didn't think it was uh, bad at all. In fact, I'm very grateful that uh, that I can get a little bit of publicity again. Remembering that uh, I come from some humble beginnings that when I was growing up as a kid, nobody would want to hear an opinion from me or ask me a financial questions or ask me a question about the economy. And so I view that as a special privilege that I now have. So anytime somebody asks, I'm always happy to answer the question. Well, listeners, for more information about Dr. Anthony Chan, you can follow him on Twitter at Economist Chan or 
you can just turn on your television and I'm sure you're going to see him at some point. You 650 interviews and counting. Yes. Or check me out in LinkedIn where I publish a lot of research from time to time and some of my interviews. In fact, I just posted an interview I did last night with Chinese television, basically asking me questions about what I thought was going on with the U.S. economy. It's on LinkedIn. Excellent. Oh, very cool. Well, Dr. Chan, thank you so much for having a conversation with us. I'm not going to lie. I was really nervous about this because I didn't think I was going to understand anything you said. (laughs) So I was so nervous. And you are a brilliant man, but you're such a humble man. And I'm so blessed that we've been able to meet you. I'm very touched. Thank you. Well, you guys were a lot of fun. Really. I say that sincerely. You guys were a lot of fun. This is probably... One of the most fun interviews I've ever done because there was no pressure whatsoever. Well, that is a very high compliment. <laughs> that is a sh- especially with everything that you have done in your career. Uh, we appreciate oh, that. Oh my gosh. Friends, we want to encourage you to please follow us wherever you listen to this, whether it's on the Apple Podcast app, iHeartRadio, Spotify, or one of the other platforms. It's completely free, you guys. This helps us out big time with the folks who track this stuff. If you haven't already, we want to encourage you to please rate or even write us a review on Apple Podcast. We need as many as we possibly can, even if it's just one sentence. Thank you for listening, you guys, and sharing us with your friends. 